0: Welcome to the PhD in Parenting podcast, the podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And I'm Erin. We're two mothers with a total of seven kids ages one to 17 and two PhDs in English. I'm an assistant professor of English and a program director. And I'm
1: an acquisitions editor for an academic press. In the 10 years that we've known each other and seen our families grow, we've often found it difficult to relate to our families what it's like to be an academic and to relate
0: to our colleagues what it's like to have kids. So during this pandemic, we decided to start this podcast to counter our own isolation and hopefully connect with other parents in academia. Thanks so much for being here and lending us your ears for about the next hour. We like to always check in with each other and see how we're doing. How's your week going so far? Pretty good, Erin. My kids finally
1: went back to face-to-face instruction this week, both of my older ones. So when I had the baby down for her nap this morning, I took the deepest breath I think I'd taken since March. It feels good. I'll see you know, how the week goes and how everything develops, but I'm excited to sort of have some space to breathe and some, some time to think again. And so that's that's some exciting development on, on my end. We'll see how long it Uh, how long it stays clear. I know that, you know, the coronavirus is still spreading. So we'll have to see how long they stay there. But for now, um, I'm counting my blessings. How about you?
0: Same over here. It's almost, I think I said it's eerily quiet over here because we've all been here (laughs) since December at least. And it's nice to have the space and the time to be able to spread out in my little office. I have a desk down here in a communal area. So it's nice to have a little bit of that quiet, that space and that solitude. But you're absolutely right. We're just playing it by ear. I'm glad to have all four kids back in school today, But we'll just see what happens over the course of the cold and flu season here in michigan so playing it by ear hoping that the vaccines will continue to roll out not really sure when my turn will be for that but looking forward to that so it's definitely a busy time though for many of us in academia a lot of us are still planning out our courses mapping out our syllabi and getting ready for that new semester I've been working now in this full-time role for just about four years coming up, which is pretty exciting. But as you know, and we've alluded to in past episodes, I did work on and off as an adjunct professor at a number of schools. I think I topped off at five or six colleges at one point in time. Here in the metro Detroit area, we have quite a few community colleges and local colleges and even the university that we both attended. I worked as a part-time faculty for a little while. So I know I'm not alone in this freeway flyer adjunct role, and we thought today it would be interesting to think about the benefits and the challenges of working as an adjunct role in the academy, maybe how that plays a little bit more into working as a parent, also how that ties into gender. So you you had a really great idea this week, you started to use our Instagram to kind of poll our listeners about their experiences as adjunct professors, or adjunct instructors. What did you find there? Yeah, I thought it
1: would be interesting to hear from our listeners on this, especially since in the interest of full disclosure, you're the only one between the two of us that has actually adjuncted. My teaching experience is limited to sort of what I was doing as a grad student in the in the context of the, uh, the stipend that we received. So I wanted to hear from our listeners to see if this is an experience that um, a lot of our Listeners have actually had, just because you know it is the edge. You read about it so much. How important the adjunct, the adjunctification of the American Academy is being, and how sort of how much more um, prevalent this is becoming. And so what we've what I found was that about half of the people that responded to our Instagram questions had actually adjuncted before. And the numbers were interesting to me because our listeners reported that they have taught anywhere between up to four and five classes, just like you know you were saying. I That seems to be a pretty common number and um, up to 250 students. Um, and the, the only thing that I just found myself thinking was that's a lot of grading. So if you're teaching composition classes and you have 250 students writing five essays at least, in a semester. That's a lot of grading on the instructor's part. I also thought it would be interesting to see if this was mostly at one institution or whether or not people are doing a lot of commuting. And our listeners responded that they commute between up to three institutions. And one listener told us that she taught at one school, tutored at another, and then was doing additional private tutoring on the side. So that's Sounds like a logistical challenge to me where on top of the classroom work that you're doing and the tutoring that you're doing and the engagement with your students, you're also having to navigate challenges like traffic and things like that. So that seems like an additional challenge to sort of trying to earn your living by... Uh, teaching all of these different classes at all these different places. So thank you to everyone who did respond to our Instagram queries. It was really interesting to hear from all of you. Erin, do these numbers surprise you? How does that fit in what we know about the extent to which universities rely on adjuncts to teach, especially the lower level courses?
0: It is not surprising to me at all. This really jibes with everything I've observed on a personal and professional level. I can definitely relate to those numbers and even what you were saying about traveling between different organizations. That was really a challenge for me in those early years. I should backtrack a little bit and say, My time as an adjunct occurred right after I earned my master's degree. And I was just so excited to put that into practice that, you know how I am, all or nothing. So I was like, I'm going to apply for every opening I see. And I was hired because I was coming into this role just as that huge Financial global crisis occurred. And here in Michigan, we had a lot of people that were going back to college. So we were having just record numbers of new enrollees, new students at a lot of the community colleges. So work was no problem for me. But I think I was working, I think I was employed by five different colleges. And it was just, like you said, a logistical nightmare trying to drive all over Metro Detroit, which for our listeners, you know, I think Metro Detroit itself is like something outrageous, like 250 square miles. (laughs) It's really one of the largest spread out urban areas um, of all. But I was driving all the way up to North Oakland County to a college that was about 45 minutes away down all the way down to a detroit college that was right off the river that was also about 30 minutes away and i always felt like wait where am i teaching today what is it i know i'm teaching composition classes at all these different colleges but which class is it so that logistical end of things that you mentioned really jives with me but then as far as the numbers right um, we have noticed that obviously the doors of the academy have been opened widely to a lot of uh, previously marginalized groups. So that's kind of great to see that we have a lot more diversity and the people that are being hired for these academic careers, but how are they being hired in? Well, mostly as adjuncts and as part-time faculty, because let's be honest, that's a lot cheaper for the academy. That means that the budget is a little bit lower. And I had a report from the TIA Institute. Um, it's a nonprofit that looks at higher education. Um, from 1993 to 2013, the percentage of underrepresented minorities in non-tenure track part-time faculty positions grew by 230%. So there's a positive there that we're seeing more diversity but at the same time, these are those non-tenure track part-time faculty positions. So that's kind of problematic. And as we hope to discuss a little bit more in the episode, what does that mean as far as like being able to support a family? What if you're a single parent? What if you need health care? All of that. So that definitely jibes with the numbers. Um, do you have any more statistics or data on that?
1: Yeah, I think that fits in with the larger development where we're seeing that um, in the 19, the same article that you referenced notes that in 1969, 80% of faculty were tenure or tenure track. And now that number is almost switched. Now we're at a point where it's closer to three quarters of faculty are non-tenured. So we are seeing that development away from the tenure, um, the tenure positions to a more contingent. Uh, labor force.
0: Yeah, and that really makes sense, too. Both you and I have taken a look at the job lists year after year. And pandemic aside, they just continue to seem smaller and smaller and smaller, those offerings for the sought-after tenure-track jobs that we're all aiming for. And so that can be a little bit of a cause for despondency, I think, for some of us, because we have all those skills required, we finally have the PhD, we have a su- successful defense, but they're still just not the job. Unit, um, I know we've talked a little bit in the past about the, how the pandemic has led to job cuts, but is there any way that somehow the pandemic and adjunct work and this whole landscape are kind of coinciding. I mean, do you think that the pandemic is kind of being used as a catch-all to make other kinds of cuts?
1: I do think that, and I, I think we see that in fields everywhere, not just in the academy, but there was one report in Inside Higher Ed, and this is not as recent as some of the other um, things that we look at, but there was an article in Inside Higher Ed um, in December where they l- Talked to somebody at the University of Colorado at Boulder, where there are plans to replace 50 tenured and tenure track faculty members with 25 instructors who will teach more and earn less. And the quote, the article was titled based on a quote of the interim dean who apparently said, never waste a good pandemic. So I think what we're seeing here is that in the context of the pandemic, um, people, companies, universities are reevaluating the way that they run their business or their school and trying to make, trying to find ways to sort of, you know, combat the unpredictability that we always face, but also just plain save money. And so, their goal is to build more flexibility into the college's sort of post COVID 19 budget. The important thing to notice is that nobody is getting laid off. Obviously, they can't, you know, just lay off tenured people, but retirements are incentivized. So, retirements are coming up. They are uh, encouraging people to retire. Um, and then not replacing those with tenure-track positions and then hiring, you know, if somebody somebody retires, if two people retire and they can hire one, one non-tenure-track faculty who can teach all of those classes that are falling out, of course, they're saving a lot of money. And so I think we're going to see that more and more. Um, some people think that this is a way to disintegrate the tenure system. And I do think that they have a point and we can talk about that a little bit more throughout the episode too. what that does to sort of the the setup of academia with uh, academic freedom and the, the importance of tenure to that whole concept
0: right it's really complicated and i have so much more to say about this because <laughs> it's like very frustrating on so many levels and i know a lot of times the universities are looking at the bottom line the return on investment but i think it's more complicated than just a numbers game and i want to speak about that a little bit more later on about why sometimes it's worth investing if not in tenure track positions at least you know maybe lecture positions with some sort of contract, because here in Michigan, it is a right to work state. And what that means, you know, not only for adjuncts, but also sometimes people that are in that um, part-time role or even full-time role is that, you know, you can be let go whenever. And that's that's a really frightening prospect for many of us. Um, I think it's worth noting too, when we're talking about this, I saw this really interesting quote from Terry McGlynn, Uh, This was also in the Chronicle of Higher Education. And the quote was full professors benefit from the exploitation of non-tenure track instructors. And I mean, those are strong, harsh words, but there is some merit, I think, in that argument that obviously, when we're talking about the adjunct workforce and the colleges that I worked at, you know, typically they're doing the lion's share of a lot of these beginning level intro courses and taking on so much work. So like you said, the tenure track folks have that of being able to research, being able to have that space for intellectual development and discovery and maybe go on sabbatical and all those great things. So I wondered if that um, quote resonated with you at all, anything that you've thought about as you've kind of been in the world of higher education or now kind of um, ancillary to it. Do you think that quote has merit?
1: I do. I see that as a very important point. And I think every time there's an outcry about adjuncting and the structure and the, the sort of exploitation of the non tenure track worker, there's often that call for um, for solidarity from full professors and tenured faculty. And that does seem to be, there does seem to be sort of like a cased setup or a, a two class society within the academy. And that's, I th- I think that that's a valid point. Yes, I, d- I do agree with you on that. Um, and there's there's some things you know about the the research that professors do as well to think about the ways in which somebody who is adjuncting and teaching four or five classes is neither expected to do research research nor do they have the time for it, nor is there any sort of compensation for it. And so I do think that that, you know, the fact that there are that there is a whole workforce that takes on teaching these classes, that maybe somebody who was hired to do more research isn't excited about teaching because the questions that I asked on Instagram also showed that most people who do adjunct teach the lower level classes. And so those aren't necessarily the fought over classes. So it creates a, a system where full professors have the time and the space and the resources to do research. And on top of that, they also get out of, if you will, teaching the less desirable classes. So I think there's something to be said and there are conversations to be had about how that entire system can be made more fair, not just in economical terms, but also in terms of the type of work that adjuncts are assigned. Now, having said all of that, and I think we will get into the nitty and gritty and the negatives of this whole setup a little bit more, I wanted to start out by asking you from your own experience Did you find anything beneficial about working as an adjunct? Was there anything that you appreciated about it? Um, Was there a silver lining that you can share with us?
0: For sure. I mean, first and foremost, I was working in this capacity right after my master's degree, and I was planning on pursuing the PhD. This gave me a lot of great teaching experience, which can be really crucial if you're not hired in somewhere full-time, right? Right that you can go to the job market saying, I've taught so many different sections of this class, I know what I'm doing. And what's neat about where we work here in the metro Detroit area was like, I was getting a lot of different experience with different demographics of students. Like I said, when I started, I was working with many non-traditional students who happen to be a little bit older. I also have taught a number of groups of like veterans who are returning. So that was important. I had a lot of diversity there, you know, working in the Metro Detroit area, teaching with first gen college students, people of color. So all of those were like made for a really robust teaching CB, which was really important to me. And I got that experience at the community college. And I think that was awesome. That being said, there's not that much of a difference between teaching a first year comm class at a community college as opposed to working at a university. A lot of the subject matter is quite the same, so there were a lot of good connections there. What I also liked about working as an adjunct is that I did have freedom, right? I didn't necessarily have to have formal office hours. If a student wanted to meet with me, we could set up something sort of informally, casually. I wasn't doing any of that service work that we've talked about in the past. I wasn't tied into any of those sort of meetings or anything like that. So basically I was there to teach and that was it. Um, You can be an adjunct because you love teaching, right? That you're just in it because you're not necessarily looking for a full-time position. You enjoy being in the class a little bit. I know some people like that. Um, We'll talk more about how that works in a situation where a person is married or in a partnership because I don't think you can survive on a couple of classes a semester. But I had more time to myself, and I thought it was conducive to where I was in my family planning stages, if you will, that I was working as an adjunct when I was pregnant. I was working as an adjunct when I had infants. So really, there were times, if you can believe this, I was nursing my child. I'd go teach the class. I would, you know, maybe that was a three-hour class or something like that, and I'd make it back just in time to nurse again. I didn't even have to do any pumping. So that kind of worked out for me, you know, that I had that time to just go, go to do the class, come back, and the baby was ready for me. So I like that kind of freedom and that ability to kind of work around and get a lot of great experience. Um, you said you had some experience, you had some responses from our listeners as well that had similar experiences. What did you find out there?
1: Yeah, the the responses are actually resonate very much with what you are just saying. One of our listeners said that the flexibility in the schedule was one of the big advantages, although she does acknowledge that that's not always possible. Um, And that's not a given. The flexibility is actually something that always is sort of alluring to me. I often, you know, look at people that are teaching over the summer with a good amount of jealousy, just because for us, summer is crunch time. So just as my kids get out of school, it's hard for me even to take some time off just because of the workload that we have over the summer. So that's something that I'm always um, a little bit envious where I see others being able to take more time off over the summer and spend that time with their kids. And then, of course, that's a financial consideration too, right? Because for me, I'm working over the summer. And so that means I have to figure out how to do summer camps. And so there's almost a little little bit of a question of how much of a trade-off that is when, you know, making the money that you get from teaching a class or, you know, working full-time versus the increased cost of ch- childcare for kids that are usually in public schools where you don't have that cost throughout the year, but then all of a, all of a sudden over the summer that cost skyrockets. Another response that we had from a listener was the students and the love of teaching, like you said, that that's actually something that they're able to focus on. With this, a little bit more than they might otherwise, and then this was—I thought this was a really interesting point. Somebody mentioned that they were happy that they didn't have to go to faculty meetings and serve on committees. So that's the—that's an interesting aspect to this, I think. Where, when you're doing the the adjunct work, um, that you're able to get out of, or that you, that the requirement isn't necessarily the same way to participate in those service activities and then again at the same time of course the research isn't a requirement so you really can focus on the teaching part of it this is all of course you know even looking at these advantages i i wanted to make sure that we have sort of like a, val, a well-rounded conversation about this topic but that's not to say i don't want to condone um this whole system, of course, I think we all understand that this is sort of, uh, that the whole entire setup um, is exploitative and um, the adjuncts are woefully underpaid and we can talk about that more. But I do, I did want to kind of see what the silver linings were and if there are things that people appreciate about the opportunity to teach classes. And I think what, you're, what you were saying to About building your resume is is an important factor. It's just that when you hit the job market, there are so many people out there that have already taught a lot. So that experience is almost a necessity, and that's a little bit of chicken and egg question, you know. If but at the same time, I think that's that's worth mentioning. Um, But so let's move on to the more more. Um, maybe more lengthy question, which is what are some of the negatives? What are some of the things that are bothersome about it? Can you start us off with some of those?
0: I sure (laughs) can. And I even want to bounce off some of the things that you said. I like research and I like going to conferences. And while not having that research agenda can be a pro, when you are working as an adjunct, there's not necessarily a lot of support for that. And so if a person does want to keep current and hopefully is one day wanting to move out of that adjunct world, we have to keep current with a good CV, but how do we go to a conference when we're barely making any money and that's not being necessarily supported by the university or colleges that we're working at? So for me, as much as I want to say, oh, not having a research agenda is a good thing, I actually really like that part of the academy. And so it was hard to find the time and the money to do that as an adjunct faculty member. Um, Another important part to me that was obvious probably after listening to this is the stress of that (laughs) multiple different roles and different times and days. And honestly, I don't know. Sometimes I look back and say, how did I do that? But like I said, I was driving out to this uh, campus that was about 45 minutes away um, away and I did two back-to-back classes there. Then I had two back-to-back classes downtown and there was kind of a stress of like, what is happening? Where am I supposed to be? What notes do I need for today? Which class is this? And I, you know, you need to be organized and I tried to stay organized, but that could be a little bit stressful and not knowing where I was going to be. Obviously the big one for me is just the lack of job security that you can be an awesome professor and do really, really well, but there's just times where the college would say, yeah, we just don't have anything for you this semester. So, okay, what do I do now? Um, the other flip side of that coin is that you don't always find out what classes you're going to have. One college I worked at, they would call you on a Friday and say, okay, we are ready for you to go on Monday. We have three classes we want to give you. I'm, I'm totally serious. You had to scramble to get everything. Yeah. it's And this college is known for that, by the way. It's a community college. I'm not the only one this happened to, but it's not enough turnaround time I, I don't think to have a really well thought out and really well prepared syllabi, you know, that's just not enough time. And so there's that sort of stress. Sometimes you get an assignment and then they say, you know what, ah, just not enough people signed up for it. We have to take that contract away from you. So there's so much of that lack of security. There are typically no benefits as far as healthcare or anything like that. Now we spoke to Ashley Whitmore probably, gosh, close to six months ago. I know where she works as a part-time faculty. It is one of the one of the only colleges I've heard of that actually offers benefits to part-time faculty, which is amazing. But I think that is the exception and not the norm. And let's be honest, the pay is not that great. Speaking from personal experience, I have averaged in the last 10 years anywhere between $2,000 to $3,000 per like three credit hour class. So if you think about that, even if a person did take five classes and say we put it at the high end, $3,000, that's $15,000 for a semester. Uh, that's not really that great. Um, and that's the high end. I'm going high. I've, I've actually... I think in the past received about I think one of the classes was like sixteen hundred dollars um, for the whole semester. So you know it's it's just not a way to support a family or even one person at times, especially without healthcare. So those are kind of some of my cons or negatives about it. Did you have anything else to add there?
1: I think that's so important and relevant to think about the way in which the entire system is set up for somebody who is adding income to the family income. It almost feels like that is the presumption, right? The the assumption, like this only works well for somebody who has somebody else with benefits, especially healthcare, but also other benefits, right? And who, where, you know, it doesn't matter so much if you lose a class and you're $1,600 short for the next four months. This is To ask this of somebody who, you know, maybe is on their own and has children to support or something like that is just, that is outrageous. Um, And I, you know, I don't know that, I don't want to get too much into, I think, I don't want to preach to the choir. I think we probably all agree that this is outrageous, but you, the way you phrased that just has made that brought that point home so much to me. So that's, yeah.
0: Um, Side note, when I was working as an adjunct, I and the children were on Medicaid or Medicare. I'm not sure what the phrase was because you can oh. get that when you've just had a baby. My husband is a veteran. So the way we worked it out was like, if he ever had any needs, he'd go down to the VA, which is another whole conversation. But right. so that's, that's how we rolled at that time, because we didn't have enough money and we didn't have any benefits. So it was because I think I had been pregnant. I think in Michigan, once you are pregnant and you don't have any health care uh, you can have those, um, some benefits through that. But that's the only way we were able to sustain our health care. We couldn't have paid out of pocket. There's absolutely no way. So I just wanted to put that out there. I was definitely on some government aid at the time.
1: Right. Yeah. And that doesn't seem, that doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't, that if you're doing what you were just describing and what our listeners have described, teaching 250 students, you know, at five different institutions and you're managing all that, um, that you shouldn't have the added stress to have to worry about, Whether or not your job's secure and whether or not you can pay, you know, if your kid has to go to the ER or whatever. But again, preaching to the choir, I assume. Some of our listener, some of our additional listener responses were, again, what you are, echo what you already said the insecurity and the easy replacement. I think that's also has psychological um, consequences for the instructor if there's sort of the lack of trust in your work um, that can maybe impact the quality of the work that you're able to deliver and what that sort of does to the students, right? And what kinds of signals that sends to the students. I think that's important to keep in mind, too, or to think about and to address. Um, that they that this that we're telling the students your education doesn't really you know matter that much. We're not going to put a, an instructor in front of you that's fully supported and can come into the classroom and really focus on being in the classroom versus versus having to think about where am I driving next? What's the uh, what's the other class that I'm teaching? Where am I going to you know pay my dentist bill and yada yada yada. So that's an important thing I think to keep in mind the importance of supporting the instructors to make sure that they can do put their best foot forward in the classroom. Another listener responded that they felt that there was a lack of connection to the to the institution and I've heard that from other people too that as adjuncts these instructors often feel like they don't know what the resources are, they're not in they're not really informed about Certain things on campus and things like that. And that just seems like such an easy thing to address. Like, if that is a systemic, widespread issue. I don't understand why that's not something that universities and colleges are meeting head-on because it wouldn't be that difficult to have a little bit of onboarding for an adjunct to show them where even just like where the copier is or something like that, right? Where, um, Or to, to give them offices that are actually located in the vicinity of the department. I've heard that a lot too, that they're, that sometimes adjuncts are on an entirely different as um, part of the campus and have to walk or have no connection to the department that they're teaching in. And that actually connects to another point that one of our listeners says, which was not having an office and not being sure about where things are at. Um, Again, tying back to the resources, the office, it it would seem that, you know, if you're expecting instructors to provide students with office hours as a service, that you would have to provide your instructor with an office but apparently that's also not um the same that's also not a given across um institutions so um one other thing that i wanted to add as a negative that hasn't been brought up by anybody else is, and I, and I kind of gestured toward that earlier in the conversation, is the impoverishment in research that we're seeing, right? So not only is it not required to do research and not supported, but there's also not, um, people literally can't afford to do research. They don't have time and there's no compensation, right? Usually the way that the publishing and the research system is set up in the university is that the university pays you to do research and the publisher is there to sort of support that endeavor um, but I think we all know that there's not a lot of money to be made in academic publishing, and so for tenure, for non-tenured faculty, what's the benefit of doing that? On top of the fact that you know it's harder to fit in because the teaching load is so much higher, and so with the numbers that we're seeing, where we're now, you know, 25% of faculty are actually tenured, and 75% aren't. You know what does that do to not only academic freedom, freedom, but also the variability in the research landscape and the amount of research that we're seeing. So, we've we hear that a lot at um, at my work. I hear that a lot from potential authors that they are working on something and maybe they'll go to a conference and present a paper because that's still exciting to them. But then when it comes when I reach out to them and I say, "Hey, are you interested in turning this into a book?" they say they can't, or there's no benefit to them, or they, you know, they don't have time. It's too much. And so that's really disappointing. And I think that that's, that's going to have long-term effects in terms of the the depth and the breadth and the variability of research that we're going to see published, if that makes sense.
0: It really does. I hadn't considered it from that point of view. So thanks for adding to that because even speaking from a personal standpoint, Right. I love all this stuff. And I'm constantly telling you, I have this really great idea. I have this really cool idea for an edited collection. And I do. And I think it would be really neat to do. But it's just finding the time and space because – So I'm in a really – awesome position, I do have a full time job, but that means a heavy teaching load. And it can just be really difficult, even if a person is full time and not in an adjunct role to make that happen, because it all seems to kind of connect to this bottom line, which is, you know, if I am going to be a full time employee, I'm expected to carry that heavy teaching load. And so it just is very, very difficult. And that makes a lot of sense. So thanks for bringing up that point. I think that's something that probably is really important to people like us who are in the academy, who are deep thinkers. But I bet with the way things are politically, and we've talked about this a little bit, this sort of negative view of the academic and the intellectual and this sort of like anti-intellectual ideologies that are circulating right now, it's going to be less important to others out there. Um, You had a really couple of, you had a couple of really fascinating terms that you wanted to bring up next that I think are really important to discuss. What were those terms that have kind of stuck with you?
1: So a couple of years ago, or a few years ago, there were a couple of articles that circulated through different Popular media. There was a HuffPost article, and it was also in the news on CNN, where the adjunct professors were, um, adjunct professors were labeled as a new working poor, and then there was also this term of the hyper educated poor. I don't think that that really stuck. I haven't seen anything more recent. I tried to look this up for the episode, and I wasn't able to find anything that was a little bit more recent. But those articles are talking about the the ways in which those of us that have um, or they were they were talking to and with people that had higher degrees that had gone through MA programs and PhD programs and that were unable to sort of make it out of the working poor classification. And I think that's really relevant because I think we're really still sort of telling our kids that, you know, an education is what you need to sort of maintain middle-class status. And here we're seeing an entire group of people that have followed those steps and that have sort of followed that advice and gotten the education that they could, and then find themselves with student loan debt that can be really high and no. Reliable employment, and so I think that the the idea of the hyper educated poor that was really interesting to me because it seemed to me to be a really twenty first century development where that education is no longer a guarantee to maintain that middle class status. And I think what you are saying earlier about how much um, you, you can earn teaching a class is really relevant. Those articles had outlined. Uh, that adjuncts frequently make between $2500 and $3500 per course with no benefits so that's even uh, that's more than what you had reported and as one of the one of the article writers wrote most adjuncts have to teach a few classes at a number of different institutions to make at least poverty level wages so that's so they're often under $30,000 with no benefits And then they still have to rely on public assistance with food stamps and things like that. And so I just, that just, yeah, that really just kind of stuck with me that, that term and that idea that there's just that guarantee is no longer there.
0: That makes a lot of sense too. And I find it deplorable actually, but it connects with what I've seen in person. Um, To me, I've known people, I had a friend that said he had taken on 13 classes in a semester. I don't really know how that's possible. And one of my former professors said 11 at one point in time, just to try to get that you know, bottom line up there as far as like income. But then my takeaway from that is how can you really do your best work when you're teaching 11 classes or 13 classes? And no offense to those folks. I mean, I find it admirable, but I just don't see how that's possible, especially if you do have a family at home, because that's a constant consideration of being an adjunct. And if we are going to bring gender into it, so say I was only out there, you did uh, maybe teaching a class for three hours. How much of that work was I bringing home then and trying to get done from home when I had two or three very young children at the time that were like, mommy, mommy, why is mommy always on her computer? Because the type of teaching we do is so labor intensive. I think it's possible to maintain that if you're giving a lot of scantron exams. But as we know, for those of us that teach in the humanities, there's just so many essays to assign. It's very labor intensive. And we talked about this before, I just think off the podcast. But for us, when we're grading essays, you know, when I first started, I was really, get, I, did, I wasn't doing it the right way, I guess, but I was spending about an hour on an essay you just can't, you just can't keep doing that. Right. And so I just remember it was kind of bleeding into my home life in a way that wasn't always really great either, because I was always on a computer. I was always grading essays before I had a laptop. It was a stack of, you know, hard copy essays and I had my pen or pencil out. And so I just think there's a lot there to think about as far as how you're going to support yourself, but then how does that bleed into the home life? Then when you're talking about that $30,000 a year, What about all the other expenses that go into it? We just talked about how I was driving all over town. I mean, how much of my gas was being spent driving to those places? Now, with everything online, what is the expectation for the adjunct workforce to have a good printer at home, to have Wi-Fi, to have a good, solid either laptop or desktop computer that they're using. I mean, there's more to it than just I'm teaching, you know, I think there's even more expenses now. So that's a little bit of a tangent there. But I just I I do find it very, very troubling. And I don't know how people can actually support their family on this amount of money, especially for our single parents and single mothers out there.
1: Yeah, I think that that's that's so true. And the the cost of the driving time, too, is something that I keep thinking about and keep coming back to, right? If somebody teaches 11 classes and they're spending three hours a day commuting between different schools, that's time that they could be spending on actually engaging with their students or with the students writing or whatever. But that's lost time, right? So if three schools have three people that are traveling between the different campuses how much more sense would it make to just assign you know of something of a full-time position to each of them and you could even do like annual contracts and you know some of the lecturer positions that we've seen at at our school at at Wayne work like that and so for me the question is why should that maybe be the direction if we're not you know if we're not willing to give people tenure track positions can we at least give them the stability of knowing you know you have an annual contract and that may or may not be reduced or whatever and and give people some benefits it's just to me so disheartening that that's not part of it and that it's all sort of like you're working like a um You're working like a subcontractor or something like that, which, again, just seems to me like it would really impact the quality of the teaching and what kinds of signals do we want to send to students and at what point can the student, the customer student that we've talked about, sort of decide, you know, what kinds of schools they want to go to. That's an interesting question to me as well.
0: Absolutely. I think it's really counterintuitive sometimes. I know when people are thinking about the budget and everything like this, sure, this is cheaper, but what are the other costs? Because I don't think students realize that so many of their faculty members are adjunct professors. And I don't think they fully understand the implications of that. Like the student wants a teacher that is accessible. And I get that, right? You want to feel like your professor is there for you. If we are looking at this like customer service model, right, that the student is also, AKA the customer. But like, how can you expect to hear back from a professor that's probably at the next school, right? Like they're already, they've already driven down the freeway to the next place that they work. So they can't have that accessibility. And I do think if the universities and colleges were to invest more and maybe make some of those more lecturer positions open and available, I think the payoff would be a different kind of payoff. They'd have to invest a little bit more, but then I think those workers, those instructors are willing to give back a little bit more, if that makes sense. Because I feel like I'm going to give as much as I get and vice versa, that if the college is willing to invest in me, I'm going to give it my all. That is why, you did. I work really, really hard at my job because it is great that I have benefits. It's great that I have some stability. Because they gave me that full-time role, I work really, really hard to do my very, very best. And I think I wouldn't be alone in that type of work ethic, right? That like, wow, I finally got it. I have a full-time role. So I'm going to make sure I keep it. I'm going to do my very best. And I think it's harder for people when you feel like, yeah, I might not have a contract next semester. I might not have any work. I don't know. It's harder for me to invest and give it my all when there's all that sort of ambiguity about the future. I see that. And I think that's where
1: it becomes so complex when the students are involved, right? Because the university is hiring you, but in some ways you're working with and for the students. And I know that I know you well enough and I know how much you care about teaching that I know that even if you were in a more contingent position, you would still do your very hardest in service of the students. And so that's where I think it just becomes so muddied when, um, when the university is not teaching the or not providing the instructors with an environment where they can serve their students at their best but the instructors who do it for the love of teaching are still going to throw their all into these positions no matter what and so that's i think that's where it becomes so um difficult and and just uh, i don't know <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think we've had a pretty good discussion so far. Love to hear more from other people's experiences about being an adjunct. And I'm curious to see what 2021 holds for the world of higher education. And if, in fact, we'll see more of these tenure track positions, probably not. I mean, if we're being honest, we might see more people retiring. But I like your idea or thinking about maybe how the university could at least bring in some more paid lecturer positions. I think that would be a sense of stability and something to aim for. You know, I think it's a little odd, like you said, um, going back to what one of the listeners said about like not having a seat at the table. Often if our adjunct professor populations are the ones working with students every day I think we should have more of a dialogue with them. I think leadership needs to talk to them. What are they seeing in the classroom? How are, if this is all about how students are reacting to classes and if students are the customers, it seems to me that we should be including this group of people in more and more of the conversation. So that definitely is a big miss for me. Um, And like you said, it's very easy to do. We're just having a conversation about this. And I said, yeah, invite them. Why not? Why can't they come to the meeting? They can come if they want to, if they have the time, if they want to be, Aware of what's going on, what's happening with the schedule, what's happening with registration, they can come. Why is adding their names to the Zoom meeting anything that we couldn't do? You know, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I guess you're right." <laughs> right? I mean, it feels like a de-
1: it feels like a very deliberate way to exclude a, a certain group of employees from the conversations that are going on in within the departments. And it just—you were saying that the other day about knowing the student and being sort of closer to the pulse of what they're going through especially now where i think you mentioned it in the context of like dis- deciding whether or not to go back to face face to face and you know what other what other decisions universities are making going forward it's important to consider you know what the students can do and what their life situations are and the people that are most in the classroom are probably have probably have most knowledge about how the students are wired and what their lives look like. So yes, you know they should be brought to the table because they would have a lot to contribute. But then again, why should they? So there needs to be some kind of um, incentive to, to you know, encourage instructors to share that knowledge that they have of the students. So that brings us back to to those to that whole set of arguments. So yeah, I I agree. I think this has been a really interesting conversation. Again, I really appreciate everything that. Our listeners have contributed. It was great to sort of hear everybody else's experience with this. And if we missed anything in our discussion today, please feel free to reach out and let us know. We'd love to continue this conversation um, both online and maybe in, in future episodes if there's more to say on that. Um, now that we have sort of um, come out of this winter break, Erin, were you able to get a little bit more no- time spent with your nose in a book? Have you been reading anything or have you been watching more TV? How was, your, how was your break on that front?
0: I did pretty well, actually. So I had three books I picked up and I finished. I will say that I started one of them, the Asher Love book. That was something that my son had passed on to me. I finished that one. So that was good because that one was a little more of a challenge for me. I remembered later, ah, oh, when I actually like the book. It goes so much faster. So I don't know that my son's listening to this. I hope he's not <laughs> offended. Um, I also picked up Shirley Jackson's We Have Always Lived in the Castle. I think she's someone that you might really enjoy depending on your mood. Have you read any of Jackson's works before? I just remember the short
1: story, The Lottery. Yes, I yes. don't think I've read anything else.
0: So it was funny because the preface to that book is like Shirley Jackson's kind of hidden in plain sight. Like A lot of people know about her. They'll say, I haven't read her. But then when you bring up The Lottery, they say, oh, right, right. Yeah, I remember reading that. She does write these sort of tongue in cheek, darkly humorous, books and novellas that do consider gender and domesticity. And so I definitely could see you enjoying this one. It's a little bit dark. It's a little bit macabre, but there's a lot of metaphors for feeling that sort of like the poison or feeling sort of entrapped by a domestic sphere and gender roles. And it's really pithy. And it was a short book. It was like a novella. So I was able to read that one in about a day or two. I finally did finish The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So I have my nerd credibility back. Um, That was good. It was one of those things that when I finished reading that, I'm like, oh my gosh, so many people have appropriated lines from this. So it was like one of those things that I felt like if I am in cultural studies and I like sci-fi, I'm glad I read it because there were just so many lines. I'm like, oh my gosh, this movie referenced that line. The Simpsons had a little homage to the dolphins. Thanks for all the fish. If you read the book, you'll get that one. Um, And so then- I sound like I'm all over the place, which I am. You know, I kind of have varied various tastes, I guess you could say. I did start the show Bridgerton on Netflix. I just kept seeing so much about that in my feed. I'm like, okay, I'll start that. I didn't think that was going to be something that my husband would enjoy as much. Um, Have you seen anything about Bridgerton? or Are you aware of this particular program?
1: I'm aware. I've seen it pop up on my social media too, but I have yet to check it out.
0: So... It is interesting because when I started watching and I thought, wow, this seems to fall right within that pattern you had mentioned a few weeks, months ago, I'm not sure This idea that like a lot of the prestige programming is either really, really magical or science fiction based or nostalgic. And obviously this one is nostalgic. It's kind of roughly a Regency era piece. It's also revisionist in many ways. And my takeaway so far, I'm about three episodes in. It's really pretty to look at. There's a lot of really pretty good looking people that are like in aesthetically pleasing Regency era dresses the sets are beautiful. The music is really cool because it's kind of like they take today's contemporary music and then kind of remix it as a string quartet or something like that. So I really like that. But there's a lot of anachronisms that kind of don't sit well with me because, as you know, I wrote a master's thesis on Jane Austen, who was kind of roughly in that Regency era. For example, a male character sort of frankly discusses masturbation to a female character. I just don't think that would have happened a because it would have been completely improper, but B because I just don't think female sexuality and sexual pleasure was considered at all back then. So this character's like, well, you have to touch yourself between the legs and until you reach a pinnacle. And I'm like, yeah, that wouldn't happen at all. Um, but you know, it did make for a really sexy kind of scene. So it's enjoyable. Sure. It just, it's hard for me coming from the background of studying romance literature, Uh, from the romantic era, I should say, in Jane Austen. Um, But it's pretty. It's a distraction, just like you said, Judith. It's like something nice to look at, to sort of look away and avert my eyes from all the ugliness that is happening in the real world. I'm pretty sure the series is based on a series of romance novels, so if that tells you anything about it, um, you know it's not quite probably what we're used to thinking about, but it's nice. It's aesthetically pleasing, and yeah, my husband wasn't really into it, but I've been watching it alone, um, so that was kind of a lot that I've been checking out as far as reading and watching. How about you? Have you found the time to finish any books, start any new books?
1: Yeah, I've put my nose in the books a little bit more recently. I've made some space for myself over the last three weeks or something to just kind of do what I wanted to do. So I also, this is just like, I'm just mentioning this. I mentioned, I put this up on my um, personal Instagram. So maybe some people saw it. I started an 18,000 piece puzzle. So that's taken a little bit of my time, but I still was able to also read a little bit. Um, One book that I read over the break, if you want to call it that, was Untamed by Glennon Doyle. And I kind of have a lot more thoughts on that, I think, than I can share here in a little two to three minute um, snippet. But this was a, a gift from a friend. And it's been really, I've seen that all over social media too. There's a lot of excitement about it. Um, it's a book, it's a memoir, or it's a it's partially a memoir, but then it's also almost like I, I couldn't quite figure out what it actually wanted to be, whether it wanted to be a memoir or a self-help book or a collection of uh, blog posts. Um, but it was interesting um, to to sort of see. So the, so the premise of that one is that the author, Glennon Doyle, is an established writer. And um, she used to be, she used to have a mom blog, a pretty successful one. And she was she had published a couple other memoirs before and she was touring to promote the one, mem- the one, um, the one memoir, the second book. And then she sort of fell in love with another woman. And this was, her memoir was about her family and her husband and uh, some challenges that they had gone through. And so she fell in love as she was on tour. She fell in love with um, Abby Wambach, who was a soccer player I don't know if you're if you know her and so her book is sort of about um, following that that love and separating from her husband and starting a new family it's sort of like a mixed family um the husband the, the, the ex-husband is still really involved in raising the kids and so there's a lot about sort of reinventing yourself. there is a lot of sort of feminist rhetoric that I think resonates a lot with a lot of people that are reading the book. Um, I found myself saying yes a lot. But then at the same time, I was also wondering sort of what, how much new stuff there really was, because a lot of it felt like Well, you know, I read The Feminine Mystique. And so, you know, we've all known these kinds of things for 60, 70 years. And then it sort of goes through. There's a lot of feminist knowledge that is put into sort of really pithy short quotes that can go on Instagram. And so I found myself agreeing with her a lot, but then also being um, mildly annoyed at the, the reusing of sort of this established feminist knowledge that we already had. Um, so something that, and then something that I'm reading now that I'm um, very excited about, this is kind of an interesting story. My daughter had, my, my birthday was in September and my daughter had wanted to get me something. And so she kept asking me and kept asking me. And I usually, um, I'm on Goodreads and one ice and and some other you know other places if i see books that i want to read or i hear about it from you or whatever i'll put them on my wish list on my amazon and so i and she's on my phone and she's on my computer. So when she asked me what do you want for your birthday, I was like, Well, I don't want to tell you exactly what I want, but why don't you go into my Amazon wish list and just pick something off of there and have Daddy order order that for you. So she did. So it was a surprise what I got. And she picked um, Girl Woman
0: Other by
1: Bernardine Evaristo. Have you heard of that one?
0: I've heard the title, but I don't know much about it. So I'd love to hear more.
1: So she won the Booker Prize for this one in 2019, and it is really good. I'm not super far into it, but I'm really enjoying it. It's a, it's a book about 12 women. Um, and there's, as far as I can tell, they are all attending the premiere of a theater piece that one of the women wrote. Um, they are all black British women. So it's, it's, set in Britain. Um, It's a contemporary novel, so there's a lot of reference to um, the Trump era and Brexit and things like that. It's very current. Um, But it has a... It has to me a Mrs. Dalloway feel. So like the first, so it's twelve segments. Each woman gets one segment, and they're all sort of, they're all a stream of consciousness. That what I usually struggle with. I usually really don't enjoy reading them, and I usually find myself getting distracted a lot. I get lost, sort of like in this train of thought that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me. But the way this one is written, it really works I think it's like the first novel that I've written where I'm like oh that's how stream of consciousness is supposed to work it really takes you into sort of like how these women's minds work um, it's very poetic there's no punctuation it's all ju- there's commas but in some and semicolons but no periods so everything is sort of like flows really nicely and it's beautiful language and I'm' Really excited about this one. This has really been a pleasure to read. And I don't think that I had it on my wish list, but my wish list is pretty long. I don't think I would have actually picked this up if somebody else hadn't gotten it for me. So uh that's been really exciting and a fun project for me.
0: Oh, I'm excited. I have a about it. Other, yeah, I'm no, excited. I think, <laughs> I, I, think I would borrow that.
1: Yes. I think you would really like it. And if I ever get to see you again in person and I'm done with the book, I will um, hand it to you and you can read it. It's, It's really fascinating. I have a couple other ones, but they're not as interesting and exciting. So I will save those for next time.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. IRL, one day we'll be trading like 16 books with each other because that sounds great. That sounds like my cup of tea. I was thinking a little bit about genre and gender and thinking about this kind of idea of hashtag feminisms. And I guess I would say... It's helpful to maybe have some of that great knowledge that we've already gained from all of our in-depth feminist reading. Coming to a new audience, I guess it's been repurposed and kind of broken down into more digestible bits for a new generation. Not everyone has a time to read all of those two or 300 theoretical texts, but I'd be curious about that one as well. So we'll have to do a book trade coming up. Yes. (laughs) I would love to hear what you think about
1: that one too. So we can have another conversation about that one once you read these two.
0: If our listeners had anything they were reading, they could share that with us online as we close out. You you always do such a great job sharing our social media presences. If anyone wanted to share some reads, where could they do that?
1: Yeah, share some reads. Give us feedback on the episodes. We'd really love to hear from you. Um, you can send us um, emails at Podcast at gmail.com. And anything that you want to share on Instagram, you can do that Um at we're we're on Instagram at PhD in Parenting. Remember to tag us if you want us to see what you're doing. And please, um, I will urge you again, feel free to rate the podcast, share it with a friend, leave us a review, whatever um, you could do to share, share it with others helps us sort of um, grow our audience. So thank you again for
0: listening this week and every week and we look forward to coming back with a new episode soon. That's right. Until next time, we look forward to meeting up again soon.